You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome back to the Riverview Church Conversations podcast. Hello, Reese. Hi, Ryan. What's happening? Look, not all that much. Just sitting in here having a chat with you. Trying to trying to stave off the three o'clock slump. That's, That's right. It is it is almost coffee o'clock when we're recording this. Oh, Maybe I, ha- I have I came prepared. Here's what I prepared earlier. Oh wow! You can have a sip if you like. Very good. Two sachets of uh, the finest international roast. Makona. No, no, International Roast. Oh, oh, that's a brand. The the bottom the bottom rung of the instant oh, coffee. Sorry, sorry, chain. wasn't familiar what was on no, the bottom no, rung. You shouldn't be familiar Normally either. Don't stand fam- on it to reach up to the higher rung. Listeners, don't familiarize yourself with the International Roast brand. Not good. I don't know. If we might have to cut that out. <laughs> no, not really. Hey, uh, we are going to have a, an amazing conversation today. Uh, one that I'm super excited about. But before we get there, Reese, always a, a nice little icebreaker for you. Uh, when you were about, I'm not going to give you a set age, but between the ages of, let's say, 6 to 12, which celebrity did you take their photo into to get your hair cut? Oh, that is, that is, that is the age. That is quite the age. Well, who are you? Who are you who if are you're you, not familiar uh, with my current haircut, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I, would, I don't have a lot of hair. I'm, I'm, I would say he's gone for the bowling ball yeah, look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> Unshined. Uh, here's a visual aid I've prepared for oh, you, Ryan. You. Brace yourself. <laughs> thank you. Brace yourself. Oh, wow. Before us on my computer screen, we have a picture of one Peter Andre. I really wanted his haircut. He really looks like David Beckham, doesn't well, he? Well, then David Beckham came up at oh, the same yes, time and I yes. really wanted that too. But what I ended up with was a part that I meticulously maintained down the middle of my head. Mm. And it was quite bowly though. I kind of Very like, good. It came down like that. And so it never it never quite ended up like Beckham or Peter Andre. There you go. There you so, go. The bowl cut, though, was it was a thing. Oh, very, very thing. definitely. But mine was not. Um, I didn't get a bowl literally put on my head. I was. It was just. I, it was just how haircuts were in the. It's a natural bowl. In the early nineties. That's true. <laughs> I uh, I remember for me and for I think my three uh, my two other brothers, all three of actual us, actual bowl on the head and. Uh, well, we we did have that at one point, <laughs> but as we got older and we you know we wanted a, a cooler haircut, we all went for the Brett Lee look. Oh wow! You know, the Australian cricketer Brett Lee, fast bowler. Yeah, he, he kind of had a bit of a soft bowl cut with a bit of spike action. Did you have an undercut? Yeah, a bit of an undercut. Oh, and very nice. uh, look, very I, nice. I thought I was top draw. I bet you haircut. were. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, and I bet it added a couple of kilometers speed to your bowling yes, action. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> now, obviously, we're not going to be talking about haircuts all day. We are uh, having a conversation, particularly today, uh, around all things um, doubt, deconstruction, hope, and um, building resilient mm. faith, which is I know a conversation we've kind of in parts had through many of our other um, conversations, but one that we thought it would be valuable actually having a bit of a specific chat about thoughts around those topics, Reese. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? What do you do with your doubts? Mm. It's hard to know what to do when you're, mm. when you're doubting things either about your faith or about Bible or about big kind of rocks, big pillars of your faith life, like mm. heaven and hell and all of that type of stuff. What do you do when you have those doubts? I think most of us end up... Um, 
to a degree, suffering and silence, you know? And, yeah, uh, and, yeah. And, but, but many, nevertheless, many of us have those thoughts and those doubts. So um, I, think, I think this is a good chat for actually going, what do I do with yeah, this yeah. stuff? How do I, not necessarily how do I make sense of it, but how do I even approach it without just it freaking me out, you know? Mm, that's good. And, and I, I'm really excited for the conversation because our guest today is, um, I, I'm a big fan of his uh, to give you a bit of a snapshot as to how this happened, I, over the past couple of years, I've read a couple of books by um, AJ Swoboda, who's our guest today, and have been really challenged but also encouraged by them. And, and so much of what he writes about, he's, he's written many books now, so much of what he writes about is, is wrestling through the nuances of faith or um, wandering spaces or things like doubt and um, those kind of topics. And I've found his writings really helpful. And so... You know, at the start of this year, we were kind of talking about, oh, who do we want to, who, who do we want to interview? Who, like, who would we love to share with us? And and AJ was one of those people that I had put on the list. And uh, I kind of just jumped online, found his website, and just put a random question out there. A cold of, call. A bit of a hit and hope. And like thinking, you know, this guy's probably got lots more important things to be doing. He's, he's a professor at a university, for goodness sake. And lo and behold. And uh, lo and behold, he like absolutely amazing legend got back to me. It was like, yeah, I'd be super keen to have a chat and um, talk some more about it. And so we kind of figured out a time. We sorted out a a late night call, which is a bit earlier for him as well and um, had an amazing chat. And so we're really excited to share this with you. Um, Just to give you a bit of a snapshot, AJ Swoboda uh, or Professor AJ Swoboda is the Assistant Professor of Bible and Theology at Bushnell University in the States. And again, he's written many books. He's a co-host of um, a podcast as well. And so we're really excited to share this conversation that we had uh, with AJ about partially his upcoming book, After Doubt, but obviously all things doubt, deconstruction, and wrestling with the nuances of faith. So why don't you enjoy this? Well, AJ, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us here on the Conversations podcast. How are you going? Uh, I'm phenomenal. I'm uh, living the the Oregon dream. It's the rainiest season of, of, of my life. I feel like winter has been four years now. It just won't end. <laughs> but I'm well in my soul. That's good. Well, hey, something we do every time on the Conversations podcast is we just have a bit of a, a random icebreaker question. And I've asked this of Reese already, but uh, who did you model your favorite childhood haircut off? Mm. Did you have a celebrity that you went in with a photo of? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not a question. Macaulay Culkin. When I, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. when, when I uh, was a kid, I worshipped Macaulay Culkin. I wanted to be, I wanted to be Macaulay Culkin. In fact, I, I, I tried to become an actor as a kid. I tried out for a movie called Free Willy, which came out a number of years ago. Oh, no did you really? Wow. There you go. Yeah. And I actually make it, I made it through the first cut of, of people, but then was, was, was dumped. But all that to say Macaulay Culkin was my childhood dream, my icon. There you go. Yeah. And yeah, some would some would say in my adulthood I look like Macaulay Culkin. So I don't know if that's <laughs> uh, well, hey, uh, thank you for taking the time out to join with us. And we're really excited by the conversation today. Uh, because I feel like so much of what you have previously written about and um you are right. Well, you've written now your new book After Doubt, which is coming out in March. So much of what you've written about is is things that we 
have really enjoyed yeah, talking sure. about and discussing on the podcast. So can you just tell us a little bit about your new book, After Doubt, and why you wrote it? Like, what is it that you were seeing? What is it that you were noticing? What actually stirred in your heart to, to actually write a book about doubt and all the things associated? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and I should say, I've written 10 books. I have never felt more vulnerable uh, about, the, about about a book than this one. This, this one that, you know, there's a certain part of my soul that was put into this book that I withheld in my, in my others. Um, I think the the rationale, the reason behind this book, After Doubt, uh, is a culmination of, A, my own experience of going through um, what what we would call a deconstruction experience. This would be back in my seminary days, um, walking through this kind of uh, period of time where I, I, I was put through the the, the ringer, um, in my own, in my own soul and spirit around what I thought, what I believed and who I was, and then coming out the other side and realizing that actually at the end of the day, um, deconstruction can be really, really harmful and it can be very, very detrimental to the human soul. So it's a part of my own experience. Um, and then second, secondly is the last 25 years of my life have been given to the spiritual formation of generally speaking college students. I was a college pastor for 10 years, a church planter for 10 years and an academic now in an undergraduate program. And most young people have never been taught how in the world to walk through doubt and deconstruction. And as a result, um, just about every week, I see a Facebook post of somebody that I used to pastor uh, or lead who is now deconstructing their faith. Um, and, and so the, the truth is we just haven't done the work of discipling people to understand what this experience is like and that it is entirely possible to question your faith without losing it. Hmm. That's really good. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience of faith and your journey through deconstruction, like you obviously grew up within a, a Christian home? No. In fact, I um, I was um, raised in a fairly progressive, non-Christian um, kind of Oregon household, um, only child. Uh, when my parents went through a divorce when I was 11 years old, um, I, didn't, I didn't have any really any religious uh, understanding or background. I was 11. Uh, between the ages of 11 through 16, I went through um, one of the hardest seasons of my life, we call it puberty, but it was essentially uh, this period of time where I was going through a lot of loss in my life, but had no way to deal with it. Uh, 16 years old, I was very hungry for some kind of truth. And I was sitting in my math class in high school, and I overheard the two girls behind me arguing about when Jesus was coming back. And they had been arguing about this book called the Left Behind series. Uh, went home and uh, had a copy of the Bible. My dad is a Buddhist. He doesn't, he didn't, uh, he gave me his Bible. And so I sat down in my room and I read it and had a very powerful, um, unexplainable ex encounter with the living Christ. Um, when I went to college um, and eventually made it to seminary, it was in those seminary years um, that I really began to question and go through a lot of the beliefs that I had originally received. And that time was a very powerful time. It's, it's almost intoxicating questioning the faith that you've been handed. But I also began to see that there is a really, really, really dark side to the deconstruction experience. And that is that we can, if we deconstruct far enough, we can undermine the faith uh, and, and go too far. 
And so I should say that was one of the most difficult seasons of my life and one of the most liberating seasons of my life. Uh, I was free to ask whatever question I wanted, but I increasingly um, began to develop a dark side, which was um, more and more and more um, began to actually impact other people because of my own deconstruction. Um, And I would say not always in the best ways. And so this is, you know, that, that we live in this really weird world where either on the conservative side, we demonize doubt or we demonize deconstruction or on the progressive side where we valorize it and re- we require it. And the, the heart of this book is that deconstruction and doubt are not the goal. Jesus is the goal. And whether we walk through doubt or deconstruction is, is, is not, is, is not actually the point. The goal is Jesus. And uh, this book is an attempt at helping people who are going through that experience to to find the Christ who is who find Jesus who is already with them. Hmm. It's it's interesting the way that you describe the way that you're talking about deconstruction versus the way that so often I feel like it's spoken about. In that people say deconstruction, but they mean demolition. You know, they're just they're just swinging the wrecking ball or the bat or whatever, however you want to extend the analogy, to demolish whatever there is. Whereas to me, the words deconstruction, um, uh, that analogy uh, hints at very carefully uh, prying apart boards and various parts of the house or whatever the thing it is that you're deconstructing and you're laying it out carefully because you want to actually examine what is there. You don't want to damage it necessarily. You want to be very careful with the bits that you're actually taking apart to assess. And yeah, I, I, that's all, I've always found that a little problematic. Like deconstruction basically means kind of demolishing something. And, yeah. Um, yeah. But the way that you're talking about it, like with Jesus as the goal, is a different way that I've I've not heard before. Yeah, well, the the truth is, um, you you can't really say deconstruction is always bad if you follow Jesus, because Jesus deconstructed. I mean, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, um, and you hear him essentially reinterpreting uh, rabbinic, you know, hardened sort of rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament when he would say, you've heard it said, but now I say to you that he's deconstructing people's interpretation of the Bible. And what's different is Jesus deconstructed bad interpretations of the Bible, but he never deconstructed the Bible. And those are two very different things. To deconstruct aspects of our theological system is one thing. To deconstruct the faith is another. And, you know, Martin Luther, for heaven's sake, Martin Luther, if you're a Protestant, you know, you find yourself in the Protestant tradition and then say deconstruction is bad. I I mean, Martin, there are very positive aspects to deconstruction that I I think can be very life-giving. But as to your point, um, if we're not careful, it can go from healthy deconstruction to uh, demolition or, or destruction. And at that point, you know that that's what we're seeing on Facebook now is is young people who are are de- deconverting uh, as it were but the, here's the here's the thing here's the thing for every young white progressive or young white person that I'm seeing deconstruct their faith on social media i mean we we assume that that everybody's doing this but when you go to anywhere else in the world um places of poverty where there are people of color <laughs> Anywhere else, people are clamoring for Jesus right now. 
what is happening in the West is not the whole picture. You look at the revival in Iran, you look at what's happening in the underground house church movement in China, in Korea, the gospel, Jesus, the kingdom is growing incredibly right now. But we assume that everything that's going on on Facebook is this, the whole picture of the whole world. And that's, that's just ethnocentrism. That's us thinking our, our newsfeed is the whole picture. So this, uh, just to your point, uh, you're absolutely right. There is a fundamental difference between healthy deconstruction and uh, unhealthy demolition. And let me, can I, can I illustrate this? Um, <clears throat> when I, when I met Jesus, I went to the, the first church I went to at 16 years old was this, this awesome conservative Baptist evangelical church in my hometown. And I am so grateful that for two years, that was my church. They taught me how to love the Bible. They taught me how to love Jesus. They taught me how to evangelize. They taught me what repentance looks like. They taught me a heart for truth. All, I mean, it was so powerful. And I'm so grateful for that. But the problem was they also taught me a very low view of women. And here's what happened is at some point in my life, I began to realize that in the midst of being handed all this incredibly beautiful, good stuff, handed down all the way from the apostles, I was also handed some stuff that needed to be undone. And that process of simultaneously holding on to the faith and being willing to actually reevaluate some of my theological positions in light of the Bible, that's, that's really good. And we need to do that. There, there is not one counselor in the world who would say the pathway to healing is just to ignore your family of origin. We need to pay attention to the stuff we were handed because sometimes we were handed things that are actually averse to Jesus. Mm. It seems challenging to know which is which, you know, which might be part of tradition that's been handed and which has been, I don't know, even know if you'd use the language of faith, but how, how can you... Yeah, that seems difficult to tell those two things apart at the time. 100%. Yep. Well, a couple things. First of all, in in the book, I outline um, two really important ideas. The the first is we have to return to, and this is going to sound incredibly Sunday (laughs) schoolish, but we really have to return to a deep love for the Bible. And, and when I say that, what I mean is that we have a deeper love for the Bible than we do for our theology. We, we, we need to love God's word more <laughs> than what we think about God. And, and why that's important is it is detrimental when we force the Bible to fit around our theology than when we actually go through the really difficult process of allowing our theology to fit around what the Bible has to say. If we do not have the Bible as our soul, uh, as like our key core, like orienting s- sense of truth, then essentially from generation to generation, uh, we, we, are going, we are going to just essentially recreate Christianity every generation. And that's a dangerous place to be um, in, 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 in my humble opinion. And I think the second thing, which I outline in the book, is we need to return, and Protestants really don't get this more often than not. There is in the history of the church, 2,000 years, this core concept that we call orthodoxy, which are key core convictions that have been absolutely unchangeable over a period of 2,000 years. We're talking about resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. 
We're talking about the need for scripture. We are talking about uh, the Trinity that are non-negotiable. And if, if, we, if we don't agree on those things, then we can't have any diversity around anything else. Um, and that idea of orthodoxy requires that we actually pay attention to Christian history. And th- this is one of the problems most Protestants have is that they have become so ignorant of church history that they assume we have permission every generation to just reinterpret the Bible however we want it to be interpreted. And that's a very dangerous position. That's a uh, So, uh, boy, I sound all conservative and fundamentalist here, um, but I actually think we, we've got to get back to the Bible. <laughs> Do I sound like a fundy? I'm fine with that, I guess. Um, but but boy boy do we need boy do we need the Bible? Um, in the book, I illustrate this by Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, who was an Enlightenment father, uh, who believed in, in the Enlightenment above all things. And as a result, he could not believe in the miracles of the Bible. And so Martin, what what he did was he took literally a pair of scissors to his Bible and he cut out all the supernatural stuff. He cut out all the miracles. He cut out the resurrection. It's the most depressing gospel in the story in the world because he cut, cuts out the <laughs> resurrection and uh, just cuts out the parts of the Bible that he doesn't like. That is called ethnocentrism. And it is the idea that my culture gets to determine what God has to say. And I don't see anybody, I don't see any of my students, I don't see anybody literally cutting out parts of the Bible. But I see a lot of us emotionally and exegetically cutting out parts of the Bible we don't like simply because it doesn't fit what we want it to say. And that is, at its root, the worst form of deconstruction. It is deconstruction as privilege. It is using our own culture and perspective to just do away with things we don't like. I I wonder if you could speak a little bit about, um, obviously, you've mentioned that there's there's elements of orthodoxy that are extremely important, but often I, I, you know, I, I work with a lot of young people, and there is a lot of sincere doubt and sincere questions that people have about, you know, maybe things that are more linked with tradition than they are with elements of the Bible, and and for so many people that can often feel like a bit of a straitjacket and, um. Why is it within at least some traditions, maybe doubt has become a bit of like a bad word when it comes to faith and Christianity? Because as I've embraced maybe what I'd call sincere doubt, I've found it really freeing because it actually opens up the conversation lines to talk about some of this stuff. But, you know, I remember growing up and and it it seemed like my belonging was at stake or... um, Or your salvation is at stake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were other things attached to the genuine questions that that I might have had. Why why is that? Um, well, there's there's a lot of answers to that. My gut tells me a lot of it is fear. My gut tells me there's a lot of hesitancy to embrace doubt as a legitimate space to encounter God because we've seen it harm so many people. And so what we do is we create sort of this firewall uh, where we say, you know, doubt is bad and faith is good. Um, the only problem with this is it undermines the witness of the Bible. Um, yes, the book of James tells us that the, the man who lives by doubt uh, is, is a double-minded person. Yes, it does say that. But the Bible also says, be merciful to those who doubt. 
The Bible also tells us that one of the disciples, I mean, all the disciples' names are really interesting. You know, the sons of thunder, there are these two disciples who uh, were apparently really riddled with anger. And you have, you know, John, who calls himself the one who Jesus loves. You have um, Simon the Zealot, Matthew the tax collector. It is noteworthy that we have a disciple known for doubt, doubting Thomas, who eventually, mind you, goes to India as the first missionary to the, to the nation of India. And if you ever meet uh, somebody from India with the last name Thomas, there's a reason. Uh, when Thomas planted the gospel there, whole generations of people have followed Jesus as a result of his faith. The truth is we often, often see doubting Thomases as a problem rather than as potential missionaries. Um, and I think there's a lot of fear involved. We've, we, but, the, but, the, but the problem with being afraid of it is that, that, that we are creating the problem in itself. Rather than seeing doubt as a place in which God could meet us, we create all this fear and actually make people either want it more or fall harder when they enter into it. God, God it, listen, if Jesus can save us from our sin, for heaven's sake, he can save us in our doubt. Mm. I mean, if, if, if we're honestly, I mean, we have, you know, evangelicals call it the sinner's prayer when you meet Jesus. But we've also got the doubter's prayer. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. We have a, we have a prayer in the Bible uh, for doubters. And that, to me, is just God's way of saying um, that this is God's way of saying, yeah, don't, don't like aim for doubt. Don't make it your goal. But if you're walking through it, there's a path. We've got a whole history of people who have done this. You're not alone. And not to, bop, not to burst your bubble, but none of the questions you're asking are unique or special. Christians have been asking these for 2,000 years. There are a lot of people who have gone before you. I, I don't believe I've ever heard the, the, the doubter's prayer in a, any form of church gathering or... You know, maybe once or twice in one-on-one, but I find I do find that interesting. Yeah, Lee, here's what I would do: if if you're listening to this and doubting, just close your eyes and pray with me. Lord, <laughs> you can almost treat it like the sinner's prayer. I mean, there, there's room for this. There's there's room for this. Um, you know, you brought up an interesting point again b- between good uh, good deconstruction and bad deconstruction or demolition, as you called it. There is as well in the New Testament. The, definite, the difference between good questions and bad questions. And you notice that Jesus responds to questions very differently. If somebody is asking a question to trap Jesus, he doesn't give them an answer. He asks a question back. It's very common. There's a, a German scholar by the name of Conrad Gempf who wrote a whole book called Jesus Asked. And he points out every time somebody tries to trap Jesus with a bad question, he doesn't give him an answer. But when somebody asks a legitimate, true, and honest question, he gives a true, honest, and legitimate response. And I think there's a point here. The heart with which we are doubting and the heart with which we are deconstructing is going to directly impact um, the outcome. If our doubt is rooted at its core, if our doubt is rooted in a desire to want to know God for who God is, I think God will meet us. But if our, if our doubt is because, well, we're sleeping with our girlfriend and we just don't like the Bible anymore and our arms are crossed, then we're probably going to get a response that's going to not satisfy us. Can, can I ask, how much, of, uh, how much of this is related to our 
maybe what you'd call the sin of certainty, like our desire to have a set answer on any and everything. I mean, I, I think about, you know, let's just say something like creation, you know, how did, how exactly did creation happen? Um, I feel like there's an element maybe, and maybe this isn't right, but there's an element that's freeing to say that, hey, there's, this is what God's word says. There's many perspectives on maybe interpretation and what that can mean, as opposed to saying, here, this is the only way that we believe this thing. It has to look this certain way. Um, but then it becomes very challenging to um, communicate something that we're not certain about. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I'm just wrestling with that. That yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's really interesting. This was actually pointed out to me uh, recently by a by a really good friend. I had never seen this before in the in the creation story. This 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 is a way to I think have a dialogue about this. Um, when you read Genesis one twenty six through twenty eight, right? God says, "Let us make man in our image." Now, the people who wrote that are Jews who believed in one God. When you read the great, the great Shema, Deuteronomy 7, hero, hero Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? This idea that of the oneness of God. It was the Jew, <laughs> right? When, when the rabbis, there's a point to this, by the way, trust me. When the rabbis um, were, were comment, when you read the, rabbinic, the rabbis who believed in one God, when they read Genesis 1 through, you know, 1, 26 through 27, that said, he, let us make man in our image. The rabbis, it is hilarious reading rabbinic commentaries on this because the rabbis believed in one God, but you have God referring to himself in the plural. And my friend Matthew Sleeth um, pointed out to me, he said, isn't it interesting that even though the rabbis did not get Genesis 1, 26 or 28, they protected it and didn't change it and they, they left it in the Bible. And he, he made a point. He said, he, Matthew, Matthew, my friend Matthew Sleeth said, the point is that the Jews had such a high view of scripture that even when it didn't make sense, they protected it to the death. Mm. And here's, here's what I'm trying to say. I think God's word is true and it is worth protecting even the parts that I don't understand. Mm. And what I feel like a lot of us are doing is we come apart apart in the we come to a part in the Bible that we don't like. Okay, in the progressive West, we come apart the parts that talk about sexuality in ways that people don't like, and our response is we just sort of emotionally start cutting those parts out of the Bible, and I think that's a very dangerous posture to have towards Scripture. I think it's worthy of being protected even when we don't get it. I think to the point of certainty. Um, I want to start with the place that this book is worthy believing as being true and good and reliable, even when it doesn't make sense to me. At the end of the day, I don't think our problem is the Bible. I think our problems are our bad readings of the Bible. We are just really bad at reading the Bible. Quite good at protecting our, uh, our, our flawed readings of the Bible, though. We are so good at defending bad interpretations uh, as though, I mean, to, to, with all due respect, my friends, again, and I'm coming at this not from the progressive or conservative angle. Um, I really, really, really want people to, to know God and know Jesus. But 
more often than not, what I'm seeing young people doing is not deconstructing their faith because the faith is bad. They're deconstructing their faith because they were given really bad interpretations of the faith. You know, I, my, my wife and I grow these tomatoes in our yard. There are, they're the most incredible tomatoes in the world. And they're proof of God good tomatoes. And when we have a friend over <clears throat> who says they don't like tomatoes and we pull out the tomatoes and serve them and they say, oh, I don't like tomatoes. I'll say, yeah, you do. And they'll eat one of our tomatoes and then they'll go like, oh, my gosh, I love tomatoes. And I, you, what I've learned is that people don't love tomatoes. People, people don't hate tomatoes. People hate fake tomatoes. And, and they've spent their life eating fake tomatoes. And then when they have the real thing, they're like, holy moly. People don't hate the Bible. People hate really bad readings of the Bible. People don't hate Christianity. When you actually experience the grace of God, you can't deny it. I mean, it, here's what I'm trying to say. I think a lot of people actually are deconstructing because they're tired of religion and they're really hungry for the living God. So... Maybe let's let's get a little bit practical. Um, and I know this is one of those things that that is hard to get practical on. How, like, how do we create better environments to do this well? I mean, we, I, I mentioned to you before that I I had taken um, an illustration, an analogy that you had used uh, about the biodome, and we spoke about that um, here at church about the, you know these this artificial environment in which often we take out all of the wind. And by doing so, we produce trees that, you know, just topple over. They don't produce deep roots. So that, so I'm interested to kind of, yeah, begin to ask the question, how, like, how do we do this? Well, how do we create those environments that um, it, there's an element of safety, there's an element of protection, there's an element um, of not necessarily control, but would actually produce deep roots in people? Yep. So there, there, there are um, a number of ways to answer this question. Um, I think... The first thing I would say um, is, and, and I mean this like with all due respect to anybody listening to this who has been hurt, wounded, all this stuff. Listen, I, I, having been wounded by the church myself, I get it. But we have to, we have to go to church. <laughs> and I, I don't mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm not, okay. I'm not saying we need to be the church. We've been saying that for, don't, don't go to church, be the church. We've been saying that for too long. <laughs> no, you need to get your butt into a community of people that look differently than you. And you yeah. need to wrestle and struggle with the body of Christ on the ground. Mm. And that means you need to go to a church where you are going to sit next to one person on your left and one person on your right who don't have anything they agree about in politics but you find a unity in Jesus together. Yeah. And why that's important is when you go to the Doubting Thomas story, Thomas did not believe in the resurrection. It is actually the disciples who tell, G tell Thomas about the resurrection. When you are blind, you need a bunch of people around you who know how to see. And there is, we, everybody knows this, we become the people we hang out with. If you spend all of your time listening to podcasts, that are deconstructing your faith, guess what you'll end up doing? But if you spend part of your time or a good deal of your time with people that are pointing into the resurrection, guess what you're going to find? So I'm, I, I just want, I don't want to skip past this. Don't just be the church. You got to get your butt 
in a church. And I know in COVID that makes it really difficult and we'll get through this and Zoom is the best what we can do right now. I get it. But having a community of people that are not pointing you towards deconstruction, but are pointing you towards the living God. I would say this too. Be very cautious about expecting your senior pastor or your leader or your vicar or your priest to perfectly sum up from the pulpit every little doubt existential crisis you are walking through. At having served as a pastor, when you got to understand that when you are serving as a leader and a pastor, you are required to serve the whole church, not just the person who's struggling with their faith. And it is disingenuous, unfair, and frankly mean to demand that a Sunday gathering covers all of your perfect spiritual needs in an eloquent way. This is why friendship really makes a difference. Because when you have a friend, you can talk about everything, confess, name, struggle, and you are able. It gives you the – friendship is a much more important environment to deal with those nuanced doubt issues than expecting a church service to fix it all for you. Um, and I would say thirdly, <laughs> if, if you are walking through doubt and deconstruction, pay attention to the kinds of things that you're putting into your mind and your soul. If all you listen to is certain podcasts that are really good at providing you all these phenomenal questions, diversify what you're listening to and also listen to something that's going to help you think through those problems. Because if, if you sweep too many questions under the rug, friends, they're not going to go away. You got to have a, you got to have some resolution at some point. So, um, I, I think diversify what you're, what you're reading and listening. Um, and, and I'll say this, this is the last thing I'll say. I'm giving you more. I have literally eight disciplines in the book about how to walk through doubt. So that's the point of the book. But, um, if you're a Christian, listen to more, read more dead Christians, <laughs> read Christians who have been dead for 300 years. Because it turns out, you know, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, this idea that we just assume everybody now is right and everybody in the past is wrong. And that's just, that's just arrogance. Read Christians who were alive 400 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and, and allow them to offer you some ancient wisdom that maybe the Christian publishing companies right now aren't putting stuff out on. It's mm, awesome. I, I've I've got a kind of a, a random question. I guess it's related to all of this. I, I work, as I mentioned, a lot with younger people within, you know, youth and young adults. And, and one thing that I've seen again and again is it almost seems like there's this inevitable age in which youth become young adults and they almost some of the things you're talking about, they find themselves in different environments that are now have different voices, their, some of their rhythms have been disrupted. Yeah. And it seems as though there's this inevitable period, maybe between 18 to 20, um, in which all of the questions and all of the, the things that I grew up, you know, as, as a basis of faith are now being prodded at and questioned. It, like, is that just an inevitability of maturity or is that something that we can do a better job at 
you know, preparing young people for? Ryan, phenomenal question. So this, this experience, this is a normal experience for me, even at the university where I teach, is you have a, a young Christian student uh, who was raised in a remarkable Christian home, and they come to the university, and all of a sudden, they, are, they come face to face with all these questions that they never knew even existed. And what happens, unfortunately, what happens is for a lot of these young people who were essentially put in a biodome of a home, they were protected from the winds of, of real life. They come and, and they encounter all these questions and they start wondering if they were intentionally deceived or they start resenting that they were not handed these questions a little bit earlier. And, and if luck, you know, they've got professors like myself who love Jesus a lot, and that's great. But I can tell you that there's a lot of universities where there are not professors who are super interested in, in those questions going <laughs> to good places. So here's what I want to do as a dad. And I would maybe apply this to uh, youth pastors, senior pastors, whatnot, is I want at the earliest age safe, safely. I want to begin to introduce my son. I have one son. I want to begin to introduce my son to my faith struggles early on. Mm. And I want him to actually begin to see that my faith is not perfectly tidy and that I wrestle with things all the time and that in the right environment and at the right moment, I want to introduce my son to the questions because if he doesn't hear the questions from me, he is going to hear them from a YouTube video of a really smart speaker who's not interested in my son following Jesus. I want to introduce my son not just to the answers. I want to introduce my son to some of the great questions too. And what I have found is that there is tremendous power in learning a new question that you never even knew existed. And when, when you are the one as a youth pastor as a senior pastor who invites people into your own struggle, when you're the one that invites people into a deep question, then you're trusted because you're willing to invite people into the hard stuff of faith. And every follower of Jesus who, worth their salt has questions that they don't have answered yet. And we, listen, Jesus <laughs> on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus is God. Name one other religion that canonizes and has inspired scripture of God's questions for God. I mean, this is, to follow Jesus, Jesus on the cross revealed to us that following the living God is not the absence of big questions. And if I follow Jesus... I have permission to ask God big questions because Jesus did. Mm. I want to I, I teach my son that he has permission to have deep nine-year-old existential angst about something, and he can simultaneously still worship Jesus. That's interesting. My, my wife and I, my son is six years old, and sometimes she'll give me the elbow and say, look, I'm not sure you want to... You know that might be a bit much for him. I suppose. Um, <laughs> sure. are, are you talking about? Are you talking about actually kind of picking a moment to put a cat amongst the pigeons in a kind of a loving, safe way, or are you in more a kind loving, of talking about when, safe way? We need to remember when the question comes up, you can create space for it and and hopefully kind of dial back on some of the angst and 
<laughs> yes. So what are the, I love it. I, my, okay. So my son, again, I'll bring, come back to my son. He has these, I mean, it's amazing. When you're the son of a theologian, you, you would think that a theologian would have all the answers. My son has more questions for me that I have no answer to than any student I've ever had. I don't know how it's possible, but the questions of a child humble the bejesus out of me. And here, here's, here's, here's what I love to do. One of my favorite moments. I mean, my son knows I've got a PhD in theology. My son knows I teach the Bible. One of my favorite moments is when he gets to ask a question and I don't know, and I get to look at him and say, that is a brilliant question that I have no answer to. And here's why I love that. I am, I am literally teaching my son at that moment that A, good questions are worth asking, and that B, you can love God and say, I don't know. Awesome. I have got to remember, and all this is one of my greatest problems with people in deconstruction, if I'm honest, is that they almost require that everybody around them be deconstructing what they're deconstructing. There's this like deconstruction pressure, pure deconstruction, peer pressure. Well, if you're not asking the questions I'm not asking, then you're clearly not loving God. I would say this, we got to remember people are sheep. They're not camels. It's not their job to carry my junk for me. And, and that to love, to love other people is to love them where they are at. Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. I don't need to bring everybody to where I'm at. I get to serve and love people where they are at. And for my son, sometimes he need not every time. Like if my son comes to me and says, does God love me? I'm not going to be like, well, that's a great question. I don't have any answers for that. I'm going to tell him, Jesus loves you. He died on the cross. And that's a, and don't ever, don't ever question that. That's like one of the most, I'm going to, I'm going to get all fundy on him at that moment. But when my son comes to me and says, dad, what do I do with the fact that God created, God created a world where there's cancer? I better not give my son a 10 second response to that because that is just too deep of a question for him to just get a 10 second tweet. I should say in that moment, you know what, son, I spend my life thinking about this stuff and that one I lose sleep over. I want my son to know that the good questions deserve really, really wise and long answers and that it's, it's okay to struggle with that stuff. So that's my response. As a youth pastor, I, I would say, I would say, I'd say any youth pastor, one of the greatest things you can do is in really tactful, smart ways, allow the people, you, the young you are serving to hear the struggles you have in a good way. I'm not talking about a burdensome way. Treat them like sheep, not camels. But, you know, there's mystery in God. Make space for that. Yeah. I feel like in in the world that we live in, where there there is a, a trust deficit, um, creating those spaces for authenticity that are loving and leading is is actually so freeing. And I think where we see uh, the most success, so to speak, with people coming to love and know Jesus really well, is when our lives have been open to them and we've been able to share those yeah, I, kind of uh, unique spaces. I think if there's a a person in this room who's maybe wondering. You know, like if if sharing doubts and sharing the, these struggles matters to young people, I, I point out 
In my own denomination, I'm a part of what's called Foursquare. Um, and the, the woman who started Foursquare, her name is Amy Semple McPherson. She was a very broken woman. She went through, she had three divorces. She was, she was, she was an extremely broken human being. What is so interesting is when you're with an older person, they don't want to talk about the broken parts of Amy because for them, that removes the legacy of Amy from their, their minds. But for young people, they love to talk about the brokenness of Amy and be honest about it. And the reason is this. For the older generation, doubt and struggle means you don't have true faith. For younger generations, to have doubts and struggle shows that you do have faith. And the point is, I think actually young people are yearning for the struggle. We don't, we don't want to gloss over the struggles because we want to be honest about the struggles. Um, so don't interpret somebody who wants to be honest with the struggles as though they don't have faith. Often for the young, that's the way that they're showing they do have it. Well, I hope you were blessed by that conversation. We just wanted to let you know that um, AJ's latest book has actually just been released. It's called After Doubt. And you can jump on to Amazon or buy it online. I really encourage you to read that. I'm actually going to order mine later on today. And uh, also, if you were interested in anything else AJ had to say, he does have a number of other books which you can get yourself online. Yeah, and, and if the stuff we talked about today, whether it be deconstruction or doubts that you have or things that... Um, are just bubbling away under the surface of your faith life that kind of don't really know what to do with or don't know how to approach. Look, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. So if, if you've got no one to talk to, we'll, we'll happily happily talk to you. So reach out to us, podcast at riverviewchurch.com.au. Well, hope you've uh, enjoyed hanging out with us today. Until next time, keep having conversations. 